This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee holds a hearing on Twitter's handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The committee's Republican chair, James Comer, accusing Twitter of suppressing and delegitimizing information about alleged Biden family business wrongdoing. Just ahead, we'll hear some of today's hearing and talk about it with a Washington Times Capitol Hill reporter. President Joe Biden today defending his claim that he made last night in the State of the Union address that some Republican lawmakers want to cut Social Security and Medicare in their desire to tie federal spending cuts to raising the debt limit. President speaking at a union training center in Wisconsin. Republican-led U.S. House debating and voting on a bill that would end the COVID-19 vaccination requirement for some visitors to the U.S. who come by air, a bill that the president opposes. Secretary of State Antony Blinken with an update on U.S. relief efforts to Turkey and Syria. The death toll from the earthquake and the aftershocks there, now over 11,000. Plus more questions to the Pentagon about the alleged Chinese surveillance balloon the U.S. shot down and why previous balloons sent from China were not detected until much later. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visits Great Britain, telling British members of parliament his country desperately needs fighter jets in the war with Russia. This story from the New York Post, a former top Twitter executive acknowledged to lawmakers Wednesday that the social media giant made a mistake in suppressing the Post bombshell October 2020 stories on Hunter Biden's laptop. Vijaya Gadi, who received a $12.5 million severance package when she was fired as policy director in October by new Twitter CEO Elon Musk, testified before the House Oversight Committee that the Post reporting was censored in large part because photos from Hunter Biden's laptop looked like they may have been obtained through hacking. In 2018, we had developed a policy intended to prevent Twitter from becoming a dumping ground for hacked materials, she said, before adding it became clear that Twitter had not fully appreciated the impact of that policy on free press and others. That reporting from The Post. Others testifying today at the hearing on Capitol Hill, Joel Roth, former Twitter head of trust and safety, and Jim Baker, former Twitter deputy general counsel. He was also a former FBI general counsel under Presidents Obama and Trump. Here are the opening questions from the House Oversight Committee chair, James Comer, Republican from Kentucky. Ms. Gaddy, are you aware that Hunter Biden's lawyers as recently as last week wrote the Department of Justice about Hunter Biden's laptop? I've seen some articles about that. Yes, yes. they did. And it appears that Hunter Biden's attorney is admitting that the laptop and emails on it are authentic. 
So, Ms. Gaddy, on October 14, 2020, did Hunter Biden report to Twitter that he was the victim of a hack? No, I don't believe he did. Ms. Gaddy, when the New York Post initially broke the story about the laptop, did you call Hunter Biden's lawyer to ask if it was authentic? No, I did not. Isn't it correct that the Biden campaign had contact with Twitter in the run-up to the 2020 election? Not to my knowledge. And you're telling this committee that, that you didn't ask any Biden representative if the laptop was real or for Hunter Biden's attorney's phone number to confirm its authenticity? We did not speak to anybody related to that. Mr. Baker, are you aware that the FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop since December of 2019? I'm sorry, am I aware of that now? I, well, were you aware then? At th then, no. I don't believe, sir, that uh, to the best of my recollection, I don't think I knew But that. you're aware now. I've heard that now, yes. Mr. Baker, did you call any of your contacts at the FBI to ask whether or not they knew if the material had been hacked? I don't recall contacting them about that on that day. Mr. Roth, Ms. Gaddy, and Mr. Baker, it appears to me that you, you failed at your jobs. You were entrusted with the highest level of power at Twitter, but when you were faced with the New York Post story, instead of allowing people to judge the information for themselves, you rushed to find a reason why the American people shouldn't see it. In a matter of hours, you were deciding on the truth of a story that spans years and dozens of complex international transactions. You did this because you were terrified of Joe Biden not winning the election in, in 2020. That's what it appeared. I can assure you this committee will succeed in holding the Bidens accountable. So much of the evidence of wrongdoing from this family is located in that hard drive that you all led the American people to believe was Russian disinformation, when in fact it was not. Congressman James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, chair of the Oversight and Accountability Committee, questioning former Twitter executives Yoel Roth, Jim Baker, and Vijay Gadi. Later in the hearing, Congressman Stephen Lynch, Democrat from Massachusetts, asking Yoel Roth whether, at the time, it was reasonable for Twitter to suspect that the Hunter Biden laptop story was not accurate. Mr. Roth, uh, back in 2016, Russia and Vladimir Putin engaged in what bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee investigators called a, and I quote, aggressive multifaceted effort to influence the outcome of that year's presidential election. The campaign uh, included hacking of the systems of major, a major political party and leaking illegally obtained information scanning U.S. election systems for vulnerabilities and exploiting the weaknesses of social media platforms to spread disinformation to the American people. <clears throat> Again, in a 2017 declassified report, the U.S. intelligence community assessed that Russia's 2016 election operations signaled a, quote, new normal in Russian influence efforts and that the Kremlin would, quote, apply lessons learned going forward against the U.S. and its allies. Mr. Roth, in a December interview uh, with journalist Kara Swisher, you state that this declassified assessment was, quote, and I'm quoting you, a watershed moment in the history of content moderation and the Internet, close quote. You also stated in that interview uh, that Twitter discussed potential threats to the integrity of the 2020 elections, and it was, quote, and I'm quoting you again, 
obvious to think about the most influential thing that impacted the 2016 election, which was the hack and leak campaign organized by r the Russian government. And that, quote, we would have been stupid not to think about that risk. Mr. Roth, why would Twitter have been stupid uh, to ignore that, that risk? Thank you for the question, Congressman. I think Twitter and the entire social media industry were frankly caught with their pants down in 2016 and missed an opportunity to do the critical work of protecting election security. This isn't my judgment. This is the judgment of academics and researchers who have spent years studying Russian active measures. And most of their conclusions suggest that the number one most influential part of the Russian active measures campaign in 2016 was the hack and leak targeting John Podesta. It would have been foolish not to consider the possibility that they would run that play again. Yoel Roth, former Twitter head of Trust and Safety 2020 through 22. Questioned by Congressman Stephen Lynch, Democrat from Massachusetts. Joseph Clark is a Washington Times Capitol Hill reporter and has been following today's House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing on Twitter's handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story. He joins us now by phone. Thank you so much. So the Hunter Biden laptop issue and the claims of Twitter being biased, colluding with federal intelligence agencies, it's been a staple of conservative media for a couple of years. Now the House Republicans in the majority holding a hearing on this. How did it play out? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It has been a staple of conservative talking points for the past several years. But um, one important detail leading into this um, into this hearing today was the release of the uh, Twitter files beginning in December. The first drop, we'll say, of those files, internal documents from within Twitter released by uh, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, uh, was focused specifically on uh, the Twitter executive's decision to uh, kind of stifle that story on the platform for around 24 hours after it was first published by the New York Post. So this was the first hearing that gave lawmakers the opportunity to question pretty high-level Twitter executives uh, on that decision, and it fit in with uh, House Oversight and Accountability Chairman's, uh, Chairman James Comer's intent to probe any potential uh, knowledge or uh, involvement by President Biden in his son Hunter Biden's overseas, overseas business dealing. So that kind of played or served as a foundation going into this hearing. Well, the Twitter executives have said the suppression of the laptop story was a mistake, and they reiterated it today. Is that only because it turned out that the laptop was legitimate, or are they defending their judgment at the time? So I think the, the case that the, the executives are making that, yes, it was a mistake. And like you said, they have uh, said so before. I think what they're saying is that the case they laid out today, that this was um, there were a lot of moving parts going into that. And they really tried to portray uh, that decision making as not a black and white process, but more of a gray area. And I think that's kind of what they laid out today. They did acknowledge that it was a mistake. They argued uh, in real time when they when they were suppressing the story that it was a potential violation of their uh, hacking policy such that they did not want to publish materials that had been hacked on the platform. So what they found out since then is that those uh, materials were not hacked. They were given to the New York Post 
Uh, and since then, those materials have been uh, largely uh, verified by several media outlets. And what about the role of the federal intelligence agencies, the FBI in, in particular? How, what information did we learn today? And I think that is the most uh, interesting part and I think the most challenging part for uh, Republicans. So we actually learned uh, very little beyond uh, what was uh, exposed by the Twitter files uh, that were released over the past couple of months. Uh, those in general, those Twitter files showed that there, Twitter and other social media platforms met regularly with law enforcement, intelligence professionals, federal government employees uh, to discuss various misinformation, disinformation, various um, issues, foreign influence on, on platforms. Um, but what the in in one of those meetings, uh, Twitter's former head of trust and safety had uh, uh, testified in an FEC filing that in one of those meetings leading up to the election, the Twitter executives were warned of a potential hack and leak operation. Uh, and so so that was that was already known going into this hearing. I think we learned very little more about um, about the potential you know interface between the federal government and these uh, and these social media platforms. And the executive t- testified today that, uh, the FBI did not specifically um, weigh in on the uh, on the Hunter Biden laptop story itself. Uh, Republicans have pushed back that, hey, um, you know, we don't need a smoking gun email with them um, mentioning Hunter Biden in, in some sort of email. They were setting it up in a, in a way to prime these social media platforms to be on the lookout for that, such that when it occurred, you know, they made this decision that they did. That's the argument that the Republicans are making. There was also um, uh, uh, Jim Baker, who is a former Twitter lawyer, um, w- you know, declined to answer some questions citing uh, attorney-client privilege. Um, so we, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, if he was able to answer those questions that he would have, you know, said, oh, yeah, well, we had these meetings with the FBI and they told us this. But, you know, there were some gaps uh, in, in questions to uh, Mr. Baker that I think were highlighted by, uh, uh, by, by Republicans on the, on the panel. We're talking with Joseph Clark from The Washington Times. This hearing coming a day after the president's State of the Union address. What's been the White House reaction and the approach by the Democrats on the committee? Right. That's a, that's a great point. So even before the, the, uh, the hearing started, Today, it started at 10. The White House put out a statement that, you know, hey, you know, Republicans are focused on, you know, issues that, you know, don't really matter to the American public. Uh, They compelled uh, Republicans to work with Democrats, you know, in line with the Republicans message last night. Um, And so Democrats have continued to kind of dismiss uh, Republicans probes into Hunter, Hunter Biden and their probes into, you know, the social media platforms as kind of, you know, um, you know, useless investigations or distractions from from, you know, actual governance. And so they carried that message into today's hearing. We heard, you know, similar 
sentiments not only from the White House before it started, but also from uh, ranking member uh, Jamie Raskin, his opening statement, and then in the uh, lines of questioning from Democrats on the panel today. So I think that's another interesting, you know, thing that we we saw play out in today's um, in today's hearing. You know, this was the first hearing in these very high-profile probes. So we were able to see, you know, how the Republicans set it up, and then the Democrats' response. The Democrats' response was largely accepted. I, and I think it, uh, you know, it's to be seen as how effective that will be going going forward on both sides. Joseph Clark, Washington Times, Capitol Hill reporter. His stories at WashingtonTimes.com and on Twitter. It's at Clark Joe M. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Senator Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, says that Twitter CEO Elon Musk personally reached out to him after his account was suspended for apparently violating Twitter's sensitive media policy to let him know the reinstatement of the account would happen soon, and it was reinstated. Senator Daines putting out a statement saying, The initial ban over the profile photo of my wife and me after a successful Montana antelope hunt was disappointing given the fact that it is no different than photos Montanans share on social media every day. It's our Montana way of life, and we are proud of it. President Joe Biden today in Wisconsin, city of DeForest near Madison, at a laborers union training hall to talk about the economy and job creation. This following his State of the Union address Tuesday night. This is the second year in a row that President Biden has made Wisconsin his first stop after a State of the Union address. A few times during last night's address, there were some shouts and comments from members of Congress in the audience. One instance was when the president said, instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Social Security and Medicare to sunset. Some Republican members called out no, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene yelled liar. President Biden talking about it today in Wisconsin. Many of you have seen we've had a spirited debate last night. (laughs) with my Republican friends. My Republican friends, they seem shocked when I raised the plans of some of their members and their caucus to cut Social Security. And Marjorie Taylor Greene and others stood up and said, liar, liar. Reminds me of liar, liar, house on fire, yeah. Well, guess what? You know, I remind you that Rick Scott from Florida, the guy who ran the U.S. Senate campaign, has a plan. I got his brochure right here. He has a plan. Here's what he says in his plan. Let me get open it up here. Sorry. He says, all federal legislation sunsets every five years. If the law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And by the way, you have a senator (coughs) named Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson on Social Security and Medicare, quote, we should transfer everything. So we have to consider everything every year. Come on, man. And then... And then we found there was a, you know, there's a senator named Mike Lee who was also yelling, you know, liar, liar, house on fire kind of stuff last night. Well, I didn't even know this, but uh, they played a video 
showing him. He said, when I said they want, there were, I didn't say the whole part. I said, Republican, leading Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare. And so they played last night something I didn't even know existed, a video of him saying, I'm here right now to tell you one thing you probably never heard from a politician. It'll be my objective to phase out Social Security, pull it up by its roots, get rid of it. Then he added, I'm quoting this now, Medicare and Medicaid are the same sort. They need to be pulled up. Sounds pretty clear to me. How about you? But they sure didn't like me calling them on it. Look, a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me just say this. It's your dream, but I'm going to my veto pen make it a nightmare. But here's, but here's actually the good news. There's a lot of good Republicans. I found it interesting that when I called them out on that last night, it sounded like they agreed to take these cuts off the table. Remember I said, no, I'm serious. Remember what I said? I said, so, so you're not going to cut it, huh? No. I said, okay, we got a deal. Well, I sure hope that's true. I'll believe it when I see it and their budgets laid down with their cuts they're proposing. But it looks like we negotiated a deal last night on the floor of the House of Representatives. Seriously, you see them all standing up saying, we're not going to cut any. Well, that's good. Because, by the way, we got a lot of good bipartisan stuff done in the previous year. Why can't we do it again? President Biden at the Laborers International Union of North America training facility in DeForest, Wisconsin today. An article at TheHill.com reads, Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, on Wednesday defended his proposal to sunset all federal legislation after five years and slam President Biden as confused in response to President Biden's claim at the State of the Union address that some Republicans want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. Senator Scott said in a statement following the address, in my plan, I suggested the following, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. President Biden plans to travel to Florida on Thursday to talk about Social Security, Medicare, and prescription drug costs. Senator Rick Scott tweeting today, President Joe Biden once again lies about Republicans trying to cut Social Security and Medicare. Here is my ad running tomorrow to welcome Joe to Florida. He is a tax cheat and needs to resign. Here's that ad. Joe Biden just cut $280 billion from Medicare, and we know about his 80,000 new IRS agents. But what you don't know is that Joe Biden also cheated on his taxes and got away with it. Biden improperly used a loophole to dodge half a million dollars in taxes that should have gone to Medicare. And now that Biden has ripped off Medicare for a half a million dollars, he wants to close the loophole and raise your taxes. I'm Rick Scott. Biden should resign. I approve this message. Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, with that ad running tomorrow. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, who sat behind the president last night, the State of the Union, just right next to Vice President Kamala Harris, who's president of the Senate. Speaker McCarthy speaking today about the State of the Union address in general, interviewed on Fox News Channel this morning. I thought it was probably one of the most partisan State of the Union speeches I've ever heard. Uh, it was an honor to be able to sit there, but it was like having a very good seat at a bad sporting event. Um, I was hopeful that um, he would have a conversation like he and I had in the 
Oval Office just a week ago, but it, it was so partisan. And the frustration that I had felt, you, you heard from people out in the audience, I mean, prices are up more than 13%. We got four and a half million people crossed our border illegally. He added 800 billion to the debt and he acted like none of that transpired. And just what this nation went through in the last week, the world was watching with this balloon, the sovereignty, and to try to ignore what China has been doing, it just adds more damage to this nation. So I was hopeful that he would have read what the American public had given him that voice 90 days ago, that he's gonna be divided government. I really think the best thing for this president is to go down there with Pete into a diner and listen to the American people in North Carolina of what about what they think. Mm -hmm. You know, using your ears probably help you a little more than what I was hearing come out of his mouth last night. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Fox News Channel this morning. President Biden, by the way, set a record Tuesday night for the most words spoken at a State of the Union address, 9,191. One more than President Bill Clinton's 1995 speech. President Biden's speech last night was an hour and 13 minutes. That's 15 minutes shorter than the all-time record set by President Clinton in the year 2000. This is Washington Today. House Today passing a bill that would end the requirement that most visitors to the U.S. who arrive on airplanes be vaccinated against COVID-19. A Reuters article explains the Biden administration in June dropped its requirement that people arriving in the country by air must test negative for covid but has not lifted the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention vaccination requirements. The CDC says vaccines continue to be the most important public health tool for fighting COVID-19 and recommends all travelers be vaccinated. That from Reuters. Here are two House members debating on the House floor on this, both doctors on opposite sides of the issue. In favor, Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican from Iowa. The vast majority of Americans are either vaccinated or have natural immunity. There is no recognition of natural immunity by continuing the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for travelers into the United States. This is, as previously alluded, not 2020, it is 2023. This timely measure nullifies the CDC's order that restricts non-citizen entry to the United States unless the traveler can prove they are vaccinated against COVID-19. It doesn't say to prove immunity or prove testing negative. Mr. Speaker, it is time to move forward. Entry restrictions were necessary during the early stages and the height of the pandemic, but that was when we as a nation were still learning the details of the virus and experiencing soaring death and hospitalization rates. Now, over 95% of Americans have various <laughs> forms of immunity, whether from vaccination or prior infection, and health professionals have deep knowledge of the coronavirus that has led to multiple vaccines and therapeutics. People have returned to work, children to schools, and Americans have resumed international travel at pre-pandemic rates. Some of the countries with the most stringent lockdown and protocols, Canada, Australia, and Germany, all have eliminated their um, severe entry restrictions, all have suspended their vaccine requirements. It is time that we as a nation do the same. This does not mean that we do not still have circulating virus. We are aware of that, but it is time for the mandate for travelers entering the United States to end. Republicans and Democrats should be able to agree that the pandemic is over. President Biden even said so himself. Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican from Iowa, also a doctor, speaking on the House floor. Congresswoman Kim Schreier, Democrat from Washington State and a doctor, voted no. Our healthcare workforce is stretched to capacity after having spent now three years on the front lines of the pandemic and add to that recent spikes in RSV and flu. 
Our hospitals have been overpacked with a shortage of available beds and a real worry and sometimes a reality that there won't be room in a hospital if we get sick or injured. And due to stress and burnout, hospitals across the country are experiencing staff shortages. Uh, what healthcare workers and hospital workers really don't need right now is more stress on an already stressed system. And that's exactly what this bill will do. As we all know, and as I can tell you as a pediatrician, people who are not vaccinated have a significantly higher risk of being hospitalized if they contract COVID. So why in the world would we invite people from around the world to come visit the United States without that protection and then put our hospital systems at further risk of overcrowding and collapse? Not to mention the higher risk of getting and spreading the disease around our country or even potentially bringing new variants to our shores. Vaccination is safe. I speak as a doctor. It is effective about keeping people out of hospitals and curbing transmission. And we should rightly expect that those traveling to the United States get immunized because we should not risk further stressing an already strained healthcare system. Congresswoman Kim Schreier, Democrat from Washington State on the House floor. The House went on to pass this bill by a vote of 227 to 201, mostly party line. Seven Democrats joining all Republicans in voting in favor. It would get rid of the requirement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that all adult visitors to the U.S. who are not citizens or permanent residents of the U.S. who arrive by air required to show proof of COVID vaccination before boarding the flight. The White House putting out a statement opposing the bill, but not issuing a specific veto threat, writing, while COVID-19 is no longer the disruptive threat that it once was, the administration opposes congressional action to reverse the vaccination requirement for non-citizen, non-immigrants entering the U.S. by air. This policy has allowed loved ones across the globe to reunite while reducing the spread of COVID-19 and the burdens it places on the healthcare system of the United States. Statement goes on, the president issued this proclamation based on advice from the CDC. As we approach the end of the public health emergency, the administration will review all relevant policies, including this one. White House plans to end the COVID-19 public health emergency on May 11th. Wall Street today, the Dow down 207, Nasdaq down 203, S&P down 46. Washington Today continues in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. The death toll after the earthquake and aftershocks in Turkey and Syria now over 11,000. CBS News reports that Turkey now has tens of thousands of aid personnel in the quake zone, and search teams from more than two dozen countries have joined them. But with the devastation so widespread, many are still waiting for help, and hope of rescuing survivors is fading. In Washington at the State Department, Secretary of State Antony Blinken giving an update on what the U.S. is doing. 
The loss of life has been truly staggering, shocking. Um, we, uh, I think, along with uh, people around the world, are mourning those who have been lost, and uh, also our thoughts are so with those who have lost uh, loved ones. Um, so far, we have deployed more than 150 search and rescue personnel to Turkey. We have U.S. helicopters that are helping to reach areas that would otherwise be difficult to access. Uh, in Syria, we have NGO partners that uh, we funded over the years that are providing life-saving assistance to those in need. Across both countries, uh, we've deployed experienced emergency managers, hazardous materials technicians, engineers, logisticians, paramedics, planners, others, along with about 170,000 pounds of specialized tools and equipment. Uh, so that's been the initial response. Uh, in the days ahead, we'll, we'll have more to say about how we'll continue to support both uh, the Turkish and Syrian people as they work to recover from this devastation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today at the State Department in Washington, part of a joint news conference with the visiting NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg. The two also talking about aiding Ukraine in the ongoing war to fend off Russia's invasion and talking about China. New York Times reporting today American intelligence agencies have assessed that China's spy balloon program is part of a global surveillance effort that is designed to collect information on the military capabilities of countries around the world, according to three American officials. The balloon flight, some officials believe, are part of an effort by China to hone its ability to gather data about American military bases in which it is most interested, as well as those of other nations in the event of a conflict or rising tensions. That's from the New York Times. Secretary of State Blinken talking about this Chinese program in general terms and previewing the briefings to be given to members of Congress this week about the recent balloon that was shot down. We also discussed the systemic and tactical challenges that China presents to the alliance and the broader international system. Uh, last week, Beijing violated international law and U.S. sovereignty with the presence of a Chinese surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace. This was an irresponsible act, in response to which we acted responsibly and prudently to protect our interests. Um, there is an ongoing operation to recover the balloon's components. Uh, we're analyzing them to learn more about the surveillance program. We'll pair that with what we learned from the uh, balloon itself, what we learned from the balloon itself, with what we gleaned based on our careful observation of the system when it was in our airspace, as the president directed his team to do. Now, we'll also share relevant findings with Congress as well as with our allies and partners around the world. Senior administration officials are on the Hill this week, and we already shared information with dozens of countries around the world, both from Washington and through our embassies. We're doing so because the United States was not the only target of this broader program, which has violated the sovereignty of countries across five continents. In our engagements, we are again hearing from our partners that the world expects China and the United States to manage our relationship responsibly. That's precisely what we set out to do. We continue to urge China to do the same. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a joint news conference at the State Department in Washington with the NATO Secretary General. More from the New York Times article, the balloons have some advantages over the satellites that orbit the Earth in regular patterns, U.S. officials say. They fly closer to Earth and drift with wind patterns, which are not as predictable to militaries and intelligence agencies as the fixed orbits of satellites and they can evade radar. They can also hover over areas while satellites are generally in constant motion. General Glenn Van Herc, commander of NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command and also U.S. Northern Command, told reporters earlier this week 
that a domain awareness gap led to the Pentagon's failure to detect the threats of Chinese surveillance balloons. The Pentagon confirming there were at least four previous balloons dating back to the Trump administration. Today, Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder asked how this could happen. Could you just, in layman's terms, explain why there has been this, uh, what the general called, awareness gaps? Why the U.S. was not able to detect these kinds of balloons previously? And then, given that, is there a, a kind of intelligence failure here? Is there, did the military and the intelligence somehow fail to understand or grasp this threat? Or is it a failure of imagination? And how is that being addressed? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So, so to answer your uh, last question there right up front, no, it was not an intelligence failure. Um, you know, as we learn more about this type of capability, and, and really what General Van Herc was referring to was previously uh, having a domain awareness gap, uh, but we've learned a lot about these balloons, and we've learned a lot how to track them, as evidenced by the fact that, again, we were tracking it as it approached U.S. airspace. Uh, and so we're confident that what we've learned about this program enables us to, uh, to be able to monitor and be on the lookout for these kinds of capabilities. And when you think about the wide array of, of activities that we monitor globally, um, but most importantly, when it comes to defense of the homeland along our coasts and our skies, um, by being able to identify the characteristics of things like this uh, or other potential threats, it all gets put into uh, a broader um, library, so to speak, of information that our analysts can monitor, track, and, and detect, and then appro- uh, respond appropriately. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, who's also an Air Force Brigadier General, with reporters today in the Pentagon briefing room. On Capitol Hill, the House Intelligence Committee holding a hearing about national security. The chair, Congressman Mike Turner, Republican from Ohio, asking about what China's motives may have been by launching these high-altitude spy balloons across the U.S. and other countries. You'll hear from two of the witnesses, David Petraeus, former CIA director and former Afghanistan commander in the Obama administration, and Heather Wilson, who's a former Air Force secretary in the Trump administration, now president of the University of Texas at El Paso. So as you look at this, as we all watch on television, this balloon floating across some of our most sensitive military sites in the nation, what does this say to us about China? And how, do, what, what should, how should we react in what, uh, not just that, that the, uh, the risk is there, but that, that China has made a calculation? Well, indeed, that, as we were discussing, this is what's really most perplexing to me about this whole episode. Um, and it causes you to ask, um, is there a process uh, in China? Obviously, the U.S. and other countries conduct sensitive activities, military, intelligence, even economic, diplomatic. There's a process. They go to the top. Someone approves it. Is it in line with what is the risk? What would the effects be if this is detected? Um, And here you're going to put a balloon across the continental United States that is enormous, clearly identifiable, go right over our sensitive sites and so forth. Um, Was there a process? Did someone at the very top actually give thumbs up to this? In which case, it calls into question those who were interpreting recent initiatives by China and with the United States, the president's meeting on the margins of the Bali G20 uh, summit, Secretary Yellen's recent meeting with her counterpart, the intended uh, meeting of uh, Secretary Blinken uh, in China, where we were going to produce guardrails and you know a foundation for the relationship and so forth. 
Um, clearly, if if this went to the top and it was approved, that was not particularly sincere, and that should give us very great pause. But so should the other alternative, which is that there is no process and that there was not a recognition of how sensitive this could be. Uh, and again, as I mentioned, this should give us very considerable concern uh, because it reflects a lack of appreciation for the kinds of actions that could result uh, in, in something quite serious that could turn what our national security advisor correctly has described as a relationship of severe competition into the kind of conflict that all of us obviously want to see deterred. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. I, I recall being with you when you were the uh, Secretary of the Air Force calling members to the Pentagon to give them a, a briefing concerning the threats of China and, and space. Now that we see uh, China utilizing, apparently on a fairly significant scale, as the reports are coming out daily, uh, as to the, the use of these balloons and intelligence collecting, um, as we look to you're transitioning from a threat of here's this space threat that China's building out, now that they're building out this you know, low, uh, hard to detect uh, craft that also does intelligence collection, um, how do you see this threat evolving with China? Well, I expect that our, that our intelligence agencies in the military will be doing technical assessments, not only of what, uh, what they were seeking to collect, but also of the wreckage now that it's being collected. But I, I actually think that this, uh, the, the, there's some things about this that, that I find confusing and that I think probably this committee should delve into at a classified level. The Chinese have over 700 satellites on orbit. Half of them are intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance satellites. Um, uh, what were they thinking? What were they seeking to collect that they couldn't collect from low Earth orbit? And like, as General Petraeus said, who approved this and why? Um, what did they intend? And did they predict correctly what our response would be? Did they understand how we would view this? And if they didn't understand that, what are the implications of that for their future actions? I think those are really important questions. Did they miscalculate and why as to what the American response should be? From a technical point of view, you know, we will know probably fairly shortly once they examine the wreckage what the capability of the, of the systems were and how they might be different from what they have on low Earth orbit. But with, with almost 350 intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance satellites, it makes me wonder what do they think they could get at 60,000 feet that they're not getting from low Earth orbit? What was their intent? And who approved it? Or are these just programs, as sometimes happens in the United States, that are completely separate from each other? So I think there are a lot of questions that have less to do with our response and more to do with how did China get itself in this position and did they miscalculate? Heather Wilson is a former Republican member of Congress from New Mexico, former Air Force secretary in the Donald Trump administration, now the head of uh, president of the University of Texas at El Paso, testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. You also heard from David Petraeus, retired general, former CIA director, former Afghanistan commander in the Obama administration, now a partner at KKR and Global Institute chair. The committee chair asking the questions, Mike Turner, Republican from Ohio. Associated Press reporting that 
China says it was smeared in U.S. President Joe Biden's State of the Union address that repeatedly mentioned competition between the two countries. China does not fear competing with the U.S., but is, quote, opposed to defining the entire China-U.S. relationship in terms of competition. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said at the daily briefing on Wednesday. President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky making his second trip outside of his country in the just about a year since Russia's invasion, traveling to London to give a speech before both houses of the British Parliament in Westminster Hall, urging the British lawmakers to send Ukraine warplanes, which he says would ensure victory and would change the world. Britain, the king is a, a near force pilot. And in Ukraine today, every Air Force pilot is a king. For us, just, just for us for our families, because they are so few, they are so precious that we, the servants of our kings, do everything possible and impossible to make the world provide us with modern planes to empower and protect pilots who will be protecting us. And I am proud of our Air Force, and I brought a present from them to you, Great Britain. Yes, please, open, please. Yes, to the speaker. Yes, speaker. And it's, it's, I, I, I will explain is the helmet of a real Ukrainian pilot. He is one of our most successful aces, and he's one of our kings. And the writing on the helmet reads, we have freedom, give us wings to protect it. I trust, I trust this symbol will help us for our next coalition, coalition of the planes, and I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words, combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in London, speaking in Westminster Hall to the British House of Commons and House of Lords. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says that about 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers are in Great Britain for training, including on the Challenger 2 battle tanks that that country will soon be delivering to Ukraine. And going forward, the Prime Minister says the training will be extended to Ukrainian Marines and fighter jet pilots. 
Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. Thank you.